the other Cambridge. Um, and it was a great introduction to, to as I say, the worlds of, of, of robotics and artificial intelligence. And two things really struck me from that visit. And the first was an experiment that I watched there um, where they were trying to teach a robot hand to pick up and hold on to a chicken's egg without dropping it and without crushing it. And this seemed an incredibly difficult thing to get the robot to do. It just couldn't judge how much pressure was enough not to drop it, because a chicken egg is actually quite heavy, um, and then not to squeeze too hard. Uh, and, and I thought that was, that was really interesting. And the second was um, Rodney Brooks' description of what the future of AI might actually look like. And um, he was disappointingly rather dismissive of this all-action, super-human uh, 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 robot warrior that I was hoping he was going to talk about, so beloved of Hollywood and, uh, and of journalism. But it did surprise me by referring to, uh, very positively to one science fiction movie that was sort of packing them in at the box office at the time, and that was Tom Cruise's blockbuster Minority Report. And I, I was a little surprised because, I mean, the basic premise of, of Minority Report, I don't know how many of you who will have seen it, is um, this idea that you can somehow mesh AI with, um, I think we're doing some meshing now, but uh, you can mesh AI with the psychic abilities of, uh, of three uh, uh, humans uh, and somehow then you'd be able to predict the future and uh, uh, be able to go and arrest people before they'd actually even committed a crime. But Rodney Brooks wasn't interested in any of that. He, he was just thinking about one particular sequence in the film where Tom Cruise, who's running away from the terrible uh, uh, authority figures who've sort of turned on him, and he runs through a shopping mall. Uh, yeah, shopping mall's still there in the future. Sorry, we're, we're going to have to live with them for some time to come. But in the shopping mall, all the kind of displays and the, the, the apparatus of, uh, uh, of advertising, they all look at him and identify him and, and relate to him personally. And they all start trying to sell him jeans and toasters. And you know, he's trying to run away and save his life. And he's, he said he thought that was a much more telling example of the kind of world we're going to live in, where uh, uh, machines have the ability Either, either through virtual uh, uh, projections to interact with humans in a much uh, more advanced way than, than perhaps they can at the moment. And I just thought that those, those two images, the robot struggling not to crush an egg and the interplay of this artificial intelligent world and the real world of shopping malls, advertising, has just stuck in my mind ever since then. Um, so to find out whether we have got there, when we're going to get there, uh, uh, and what the future is going to look like, we've got the most fantastic panel here assembled this evening. And to get things going, we're going to hear from, uh, from the man who many regard as the original tech entrepreneur, uh, the founder of Acorn Computers, which is how I, I first met him, uh, um, and, and what brought him, uh, well, it was a, a project in, that involved uh, the BBC at the time, although entrepreneurs were not called entrepreneurs then. I think you were called micro-men, uh, 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 as I seem to remember. Subsequently, Vice President of Research at Olivetti, founder of Amadeus Capital Partners, the serial innovator and entrepreneur, Dr. Herman Hauser. Well, thank you for this kind introduction. 
Uh, do we have the slides up here, or uh, do I say next slide, or how do we run this? <laughs> we can do this. No. <laughs> Well, whilst we are preparing this <laughs> thing, let me, uh, let me tell you that um, after the BBC Micro, <clears throat> I got involved in a, in a number of uh, deep technology projects. You see, you ought to see a, a robot uh, with uh, Alan Turing. Uh, here we are okay. listening to him <coughs> attentively. Uh, <clears throat> and here we go. Good. Brilliant. And do we have a clicker or do we... Just next. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. No, 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 that's, that's fine. <laughs> I can do that. So the, the, the key theme of tonight's um, discussion is: uh, Will artificial intelligence uh, entities ever be uh, more intelligent than humans? Will they be superior to humans? And let me put the uh, <coughs> my. Admit to which camp I am in right away at the beginning. My answer is yes. They will be able to do everything that humans uh, are able to do, and they will be able to do it better. So, in a way, this has to do with what intelligence is itself. And um, I've come up with a definition of intelligence here, which I'm, I'm very enamored with. Um, I think intelligence actually is knowing what to do next. It's probably not the obvious thing that people think of when they're thinking of intelligence. They, uh, you know, we used to think that playing uh, chess was something that is uh, very intelligent until we had a world chess champion, and then we thought maybe it's not so hard. And as it turned out, it wasn't actually about a, a very hard problem. As we see, as we will see in a moment, uh, playing Go at human levels is rather more difficult. Because, and the reason why we'll be about to, to do this, probably in two weeks' time, is this. Uh, the, arguably the most uh, impressive and uh, exciting breakthrough uh, that we've had with machine learning. It is, it is such a paradigm shift that I just wanted to uh, tell you why I think it is so fundamental and why it's so important. Uh, during the entire history of computing, uh, we've always thought of computers being based on bits, uh, on logic, and everybody knows that it's zeros and ones which are really the fundamental building block of computing. Well, it turns out that actually the really useful fundamental building block is not a bit, a zero or one, but is a P, a probability, uh, you know, uh, a real number in the um, open interval, well, actually the closed interval between zero and one, but the interesting bit is actually the open interval. Uh, and if you, uh, if you believe that, uh, if you think that it's actually probabilities that it's all about, not zeros and one, it's not logic, then there are a number of serious consequences of this uh, belief that uh, you know, many of us have now, that the world turns from a deterministic world to a statistical world. Uh, that you don't program anymore, but you teach. 
uh, you basically present lots of examples, a teaching data set, uh, and let the computer figure out uh, the best way of dealing with that. Uh, it needs a lot of data, uh, and that's the single most important improvement that we've had uh, in the AI community. Jeff Hinton, one of the heroes of this uh, AI community, gave a, a talk at the Royal Society recently, where he said there are three reasons uh, in increasing number of importance why these AI programs work so spectacularly well. One is improvements in algorithms, and that's actually very minor. Basically, it was backpropagation that really enabled it, uh, and then some tweaks. Uh, an increase in compute power by a factor of a thousand since we first thought of these things was helpful. But the real uh, reason is a million times more data. So the, his famous program that does face recognition and object recognition better than humans, which I thought was decades away uh, last year, was trained on 15 million pictures. Now, you know, we're good at recognizing fi uh, uh, faces, recognizing pictures, objects, but at 15 million, you just have to throw up your hands and say, no can do. The big problem with machine learning is not that they can learn better than we, we uh, are, and we can learn, but they do things uh, with a particular goal structure. And uh, <clears throat> giving them human goals to do the right thing for us is uh, what people call the genie problem we're actually very bad at formulating the right goals, the right uh, aims for these computers. There are lots of examples of where things you know, go wrong. You've got the Terminator. You've got a, a rather sweet movie called Her, uh, you know, that just shows aspects of AI that you would have never thought of. He falls in love with this uh, uh, AI, and she goes away for a couple of days. Uh, and she's finally back, and he says, where are, where were you? And he says, I got a software upgrade. Oh, and, says, uh, 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 and I had to talk to, 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 to lots of people before I talked to you. Oh, he says, how many people are you talking to? And she says, uh, at the moment, 18,750. Oh, he says, and how many are you in love with? Uh, she says, uh, only 673. So, uh, you know, AIs can do things that, uh, that even the best... Uh, uh, Don Juan will n never be able to achieve. There's also a very interesting uh, movie, uh, this one, uh, that uh, <coughs> deals with uh, uh, AIs being able to um, uh, deceive humans as well, called Ex Machina. Martin Rees, some time ago, uh, wrote this famous book called Our Final Century. Uh, when he tried to sell it in the US, uh, the publishers told him he's got to call it our final hour because Americans want instant gratification. <laughs> he, <coughs> he also uh, warned us now uh, 13 years ago that there are serious problems with uh, uh, you know, improvements in uh, areas like artificial intelligence. Uh, our uh, own Steve Hawkins and Elon Musk, who is now sort of the new Steve Jobs in the Valley, have said uh, success in creating AI would be the biggest event in human history. Unfortunately, it might also be the last unless we learn how to avoid the risks. And uh, Elon says, hope we're not just the biological bootloader for su digital superintelligences. Unfortunately, this is increasingly likely. Uh, and therefore, uh, there are a number of activities around the world, like our local CESA, the Center for the Study of uh, Existential Risk, which uh, Pamela and I are also supporting, of course, Martin Rees and Hugh Price, the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, uh, Nick Bostrom has just written a, a very impressive book called uh, Superintelligence, the Future of Life Institute in uh, Boston, and so on. So where are we? 
We've got a world uh, uh, a computer chess champion. Uh, more impressively, actually, the IBM Watson uh, program became the winner of Jeopardy, which is uh, an American uh, program uh, that actually uh, you know, is reasonably intelligent in terms of uh, answering questions in English. But in the way, the most impressive thing which has happened and is about to happen on an even bigger scale is Go. Now, why is Go uh, so much more impressive than chess? Well, first of all, it is much more complicated than chess uh, because the board is 19 by 19 uh, chess board, the number of uh, uh, configurations of this, uh, uh, that this board can have is around 10 to the 53, uh, um, which is a, a very large number. I might have got, might, must have gotten this wrong, because Demis always says uh, uh, that there are uh, more configurations than particles in the universe, and, and that's 10 to the 80. So it must be more uh, than 10 to the 53. So anyway, it's a very large number. Uh, and so any of the brute force methods are just out. Uh, even the uh, methods that were used in uh, chess, which were only partially brute force, um, uh, don't work here. So the only thing that seems to work is this new belle de jour that we have in artificial intelligence called deep learning. And deep learning just looks at lots and lots and lots of, con of games, in this particular case 30 million of them, and learns from which games go one way and which games go the other way and stores it in a, in a sort of, well, in two things. One is uh, to give a value to a particular situation and then a policy of what to do next, or what's the next move. Uh, this program of DeepMind, it's a Google company called AlphaGo, has already beaten the European champion and will have the world champion, who is a Korean, uh, in a one million pound match, uh, I think in two weeks time. Now, I come to another amazing new product that uh, potentially could herald a new product category that might be as important as the iPhone. Now, some of you, I think, believe that smartphones are uh, you know, a pretty important category. So this is a, quite a, uh, a, a strong statement to make. I don't know if we actually managed to get it going, because unfortunately, <clears throat> this university still lives in the Diluvian age when it comes to <laughs> Wi-Fi and stuff. It, it, is, it is a total scandal uh, that every uh, university in the States, in fact, every uh, high-tech center in the States has free Wi-Fi everywhere. Uh, you know, here we've got to go through contortion. So, anyway, uh, we'll, uh, we'll give, this, uh, give this a try. Uh, Alexa, uh, play me uh, Yellow Submarine by the uh, Beatles. I'm not sure what went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, we'll try once, once more. The thing that probably went wrong is that the only way uh, uh, William I managed to, William is actually the person who wrote the software uh, for Alexa, and it just happens, he happens to uh, have come to the meeting tonight so that he could actually set it up. But the only way we could set it up is by going through the hotspot in my mobile phone <laughs> and going around the university network. So we'll give it one more shot, if we, because the, 
the thing was probably not good enough. No, we've got two things. Alexa, play Yellow Submarines of the Beatles. I'm not sure what went wrong. <laughs> right. It does that. It does that very well. Uh, actually. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's, it's connecting. Alexa, what time is it in the UK? The time in the United Kingdom is 7.59 p.m. I think it's, maybe that Alexa, <laughs> uh, what is the integral of sine x? The integral of cos x is sin x plus c, and the integral of sin x is cos x plus c. So let's, Alexa, Alexa, <laughs> who, was, who was president of the United States when Obama was a teenager? Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, and Gerald Ford were the U.S. presidents when Barack Obama was a teenager. William Tenslepedo. Now, he is, he is the person who actually wrote the software in uh, the Amazon Echo. Why do I think this is such a fundamental breakthrough? Well, you've just lived through the most dramatic change in user interfaces that we've uh, ever had, which is the change uh, from a keyboard and a mouse to touch. And you thought with, with the iPhone, etc. And that was pretty fundamental. This is nothing compared with the... Uh, interface change to voice, which we're about to see. Why? Because one of the great changes that we're also about to see is the introduction of the Internet of Things. And the only way you can get to all the thermometers, the, uh, uh, you know, the health apps, the um, weather stations in your house is by, by a voice interface, by being able uh, to talk to it. So we've got excellent speech recognition and voice recognition. What is missing, I must... Uh, come to an end, common sense. Uh, here you see that the fact that he's uh, really uh, strapped in very well won't help him a lot. But we, we predict this immediately. Uh, computers are not so good at it, and they're also not very good at making breakfast yet. So on superintelligences, uh, there is a consensus that by 2050, I think we will have them. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you. So we're going to move very quickly uh, from, uh, from software to hardware now, because obviously in parallel with artificial intelligence are advances in robotics. And to bring us up to speed on, on that is the Professor of Electronic Engineering and Director of uh, Science Communication Unit at the University of the West of England, Professor Alan Winfield. Professor Winfield's also uh, um, co-founder of the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. That's right, isn't it? And if you ever get a chance to go, or you can twist his arm while he's here tonight, do, because it's the most fantastic place. Alan Winfield. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Tom, uh, and uh, 
Um, hello, everybody. It's great to be here. So, yes, as, as Tom said, I'm, I'm the hardware guy. So my kind of, you know, I'm taking a slightly different um, uh, take on the question. Will robot intelligence be superior to the human brain? Or kind of the subtitle is, how intelligent are intelligent robots? But of course, the, the big problem with intelligence is what, what is it? What do we mean by intelligence? Um, and, you know, my, my kind of uh, favorite, um, uh, if you like, hard problem in intelligence is making a cup of tea in somebody else's kitchen. Uh, we have not a robot on the planet c that can do that. Um, so, you know, in a sense, actually, it's worth reflecting that in 60 years of AI, we've kind of learned that the things that we originally thought were really hard, like chess, turn out to be relative, not easy, but relatively easy. Because the things that we thought would, would be really easy, like physically moving around in, in the real world, have turned out to be really, really hard. So, you know, how intelligent is your robot? Now, you know, there is a kind of sense, there's a folk sense in which uh, a cat is smarter than a crocodile, a crocodile is smarter than a cockroach. So where do robots, oh, and of course that the humans are up at the right, end of, the right hand end of that spectrum. So where do robots fit on this spectrum? Well, um, by <laughs> my estimation, uh, the humble robot vacuum cleaner is about as smart as an E. coli. <laughs> that, that was really, really kind of depressing when I realized that that is the case, that you have to go off the scale of, of you have to go to single-celled organisms. But what about um, humanoid robots? So here is one, and if I can get this movie to play, if I can find it. Oh, yes, I found it. You probably can't hear the... the, the uh, I'm just like a human, don't I? Well, it is really hard to recreate a robot which looks just like a real human. More than you would imagine. Because you can tell that I'm not a real human if there is the slightest trace of a naturalness in my behavior or action. This is not just a humanoid robot, but an android robot of the kind that, uh, that you typically find in Japanese research labs. Now, if you saw that robot across the other side of a crowded room, you'd probably assume it was a person. But the moment that you interacted with it, you'd realize it was not. Um, you know, it's really quite hard to, to position that robot on that scale. But, but, you know, my assessment is that that robot's little smarter than a washing machine. Very little smarter than a washing machine. It's certainly nowhere near as smart as the system that Herman's just shown us. Um, which really goes, uh, you know, goes to show that uh, appearances can be deceptive in robotics. So don't believe how smart your, your humanoid robot is. Actually, there's an ethical problem, which I call the brain-body mismatch problem, but, but that's, you know, we can talk about that another time. Um, one thing that's very clear is that intelligence is not one thing that we uh, or animals or robots have more or less of. It's many things. It's a kind of... Uh, if you like, it's a whole mixture of, of, of aspects. I'll, I'll show you very quickly just four, uh, if you like, my favorite four, the ones that I've worked on. Morphological intelligence is the kind of intelligence you get for free from having a complicated body. Uh, then uh, we have swarm intelligence, which is really interesting, the kind of intelligence that you find in social insects, uh, hugely interesting. But perhaps more pertinent to uh, this evening's debate is individual intelligence. And I really wanted to show you this uh, little uh, movie clip here uh, of uh, uh, 
quite a large-scale EU project called Expero, and the, essentially the outcome of that project was a robot that could learn how to stack blocks, coloured blocks. Uh, it's pretty impressive, except when you compare the robot with the little girl on the left, um, who figured all of this out uh, much more easily than the robot, certainly didn't require a team of European universities <laughs> three years of EU funding uh, to, to, to do that. And, and it's very important to understand, of course, that, that, that at the end of this wonderful project, beautiful project, the robot was only able to do that one thing, <laughs> nothing else. Whereas, of course, that little girl learned dozens of other skills, like how to get dressed and, and how to feed herself and so on, all at the same time. Really just you know, beautifully illustrates the gap that we have between uh, human intelligence and, and robot intelligence. Now, um, social intelligence is another one of my favorite kinds of intelligence. It's the kind of intelligence that allows us to learn from each other. Now, I don't have any movies of this, but, but, but I don't have time anyway. Um, you know, I think there are some really promising directions in research and intelligence. Here are a few of them. And the one that I'm working on at present is, is, is robots with internal models. So I just really want to show you a few slides of new work in, uh, in robots with internal models, simulation-based internal models. So I think that, you know, my own view is that cognition, a really important part of cognition is prospection. In other words, being able to look into the future and it really goes back to Herman's definition of, of uh, deciding your next action. How can you decide the next action unless you can um, look into the future, unless you can predict the consequences of all of the possible actions you could make? So what we've done in the lab is put uh, a simulation of, again, the now robot, um, not just the robot, but its environment and other robots inside the robot. It takes a bit of getting your head round so the robot has a simulation of itself, the world, and, its and other robots inside itself, running in real time, which is quite hard to do technically. And as a kind of proof of principle, uh, we decided to make this into an ethical robot, really as a kind of test uh, study for robots with internal models. So we have three robots. Uh, in fact, the blue one is running the internal model, and the two red ones are kind of proxy humans who um, are, uh, as it were, about to, to come to harm, about to fall into a hole. It's not a real hole, it's just a, a danger zone. And, uh, and this is, uh, I'll, I'll show you this graph. This shows what happens when the, the, the ethical robot, the blue one, uh, starts towards, its, it has a goal, which is this, this position here. But when it notices at this point that the, the proxy human is heading for danger, then it actually diverts from its path and heads off the human, uh, preventing the human from, from coming to harm. It's Asimov's first law of robotics, in fact. Um, and it does all of that because of its internal model. It can predict the consequences of its own and the other robot's actions in the world that they're, they're, they're in. And with this ethical rule, which is just a very thin layer on top of that consequence engine, we get this behavior. And let me just show, show you a very quick movie clip of exactly the same experiment, uh, but with the, the showing you what the, the robots actually do, these rather cute robots. So there it is. Uh, our uh, ethical robot has uh, saved, as it were, the, <laughs> the proxy human and heads off to its 
goal position. Now, just to make it more interesting, but perhaps harder for the ethical robot, we thought, well, okay, let's give the robot an ethical dilemma. So, same code, exactly the same code. Now there are two humans, both heading toward danger. And our ethical robot really can't decide. <laughs> okay. Forget that one. We'll save the other one. So, um, I'll, at that point, I'll, I'll uh, leave it at that and, and say thank you very much indeed. Thank you. sure it necessarily got that wrong but uh, um, of course what you really uh, um, need to achieve uh, artificial intelligence and computers is, uh, um, is is much more than simply crunching data they have to be able to reason they have to be able to think which I think is the point we were we were getting at there and I think our our, our, our next speaker is going to be really well able to to, to talk about that um, as a senior lecturer at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory, uh, Dr. Matea Yamnik, uh, um, her research is focused on problem solving, if you like, and um, modelling this type of, of, of reasoning in computers. I think you've been it's been described as humanising uh, computer thinking. So, Matea, come and talk to us about that. Well, hello, uh, welcome, and it's very nice to see so many of you being so interested in AI, and thank you, Tom, for introducing. So, um, AI is making, artificial intelligence is making news headlines, and we've seen quite a lot of them today already, uh, and we see them every day, and I think, indeed, that's why all of you are here tonight, aren't you? So, there's a lot of excitement around about AI. We all read stories about um, uh, DeepMind beating the European uh, Go champion. And yes, indeed, I think next week, in fact, they're scheduling the World Championship for, for Go. And I think um, Demis is saying it's about 50-50 chance that his DeepMind's going to beat the, the World Champion. Um, and of course, we have um, driver, driverless cars that they are driving at the moment on the streets of uh, California. Well, maybe off the streets in California. <laughs> and soon, I think, they are going to come to London. I think this headline is saying that it's coming, they're coming to London. Um, and we heard about Amazon parcels being delivered by drones and so on. And, um, and of course, in, in the entertainment industry, we have films like uh, Ex Machina, um, and then, of course, you know the series, The Humans. And the, the, these are um, uh, features that are populated by robots that are essentially indistinguishable from, for humans. 
So we're surrounded by all of these um, uh, stories about AI. So it, it's, it's no wonder why people are asking questions such as, will artificial intelligence be superior from, um, from humans? And so I'm, I'm a, a researcher in AI, and um, I, I'm a lecturer, senior lecturer here at the university, and so I'm going to give you, I'm going to try to answer this question from the point of view what the current researchers are doing in AI. Um, so the question is really, what has changed that has uh, created, uh, that has made AI such a hot topic? Um, so, you know, AI came about uh, a long time ago, and in the 70s there were lots of promises made, and they were kind of extravagant prom promises, and they were not delivered, right? And um, this has somehow stifled AI research for about 40 years. And so, uh, but what's different nowadays is that we are kind of seeing the narrowing of the scope of what AI is. I'm sure that all of you will agree that the fact that you can talk to your phone and it understands what you're saying, or in fact, the new machine over there, um, is an intelligent behavior. Or the fact that you don't have to be the driver of your car is intelligent behavior. So, um, so rather nowadays, rather than promising something that is not really achievable, we, we are really approaching the subject from much more specialized, a smaller and tan with uh, smaller problems with tangible goals. And um, so the, the technology has moved on and it's unlocked uh, an immense potential uh, so that all of us academics and industrialists are all e excited about artificial intelligence. So I think that in terms of technology, I think that, uh, and I think Herman has al also mentioned it already, there are three main uh, factors that have uh, precipitated this step change in terms of AI and in terms of AI research. The first one is the availability of masses of data that we are all generating all the time. The second one is the supercomputing power that is available to us and unlocked by the, uh, the um, distributed and cloud computing. And the third one is new and much more sophisticated <coughs> machine learning algorithms that we haven't considered before. So, um, let me just think about the data first. So every click you make, every purchase you make on, online, every conversation you have with your friends on social media, that data is recorded. And um, imagine we are generating it all the time. So on YouTube, um, every 300 hours of videos are uploaded every single minute. Can you imagine? Masses of data. And all of this data now provides us uh, an insight into who we are, what do we do, and into each individual one of us. And so what happens is that when you, when you browse Next or when you go on Netflix, it'll say, mm, I think that you might like this. 
So all of this data is used with machine learning algorithms for that. And moreover, it's not just your individual recommendations, but it's, uh, all of this data is also giving us um, an insight and a, an ability to learn something about our behavior or people's behavior in general. And in most cases, this data is freely available. So I think this was the first massive, massive step, uh, um, cause of the step change in AI research. So let me go now to the computing power. You can rent uh, computing power for really, really very cheaply uh, from, for example, any one of Amazon's uh, data hubs, data centers, and you get instant access to around 80,000 servers in each one of these um, hubs. And just for comparison, what that means is that um, remember Herman showed you uh, Watson that beat Jeopardy in, in 2011? That used 90 servers. So we have access to all of this computing power instantly. But perhaps the most important or the, the it, I think it is the new machine learning algorithms that are, I think, at the heart of uh, the AI revolution. So unlike in the past when we were specializing in um, uh, very, very specific software that knew about the problems and tried to solve these very specific problems, today machine learning algorithms know nothing about the problem. All they know is how to learn. And so they, they are general so that you can throw at them any data and they'll go away and crunch the data and spot patterns. So if you give it uh, masses, millions of images, it will go away, crunch, 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 and say, oh, here's a nose, here's an eye, oh, here must be a face, even though it knows nothing about eyes and it knows nothing about faces and nothing about noses. And um, so because we have now these enormous amounts of data, and we have these enormous amounts of storage available to us and these super fast computing power, we now can run these machine learning algorithms on all of this information. And in fact, any problem that can be recast as a, as a statistical algorithm can now be, uh, that works over huge data sets can now be revisited and tackled again. And that's why people are really uh, enthusiastic and are having new creative approaches to AI. But of course, there are huge challenges ahead of us still. And um, some, and especially in terms of if you want to consider general AI. And what do we mean by general? Everybody has their own definition, but um, we could call it a flexible, uh, learning, self-improving, kind of systems that can perform in a way that humans do or that is indistinguishable from humans. Um, and uh, yes, current system, AI systems are super fast and they can work on a lot of information in a very specialized problems. And they do that on very, very specialized problems, singular problems, singular tasks. And um, they are very much machine oriented and most of the time uh, unintelligible or incomprehensible to humans. Um, so one of the abilities that these AI systems are lacking is human-like thinking. 
uh, perhaps we could call that intuitive thinking. So, and this is where my work comes in. I mean, I, I, I look at how humans solve mathematical problems uh, with these so-called Eureka steps, these sort of intuitive methods. And I try to um, understand them and uh, make computers think in the same way. So I'm essentially, essentially humanizing computer, computer thinking in my research. So let me just give you um, a, a very famous example. So a very famous problem asked, some of you might have seen this before. It's called the mutilated checkerboard example. And it's basically a checkerboard, which is made by eight boards, and it's mutilated because we took away two uh, diagonal um, squares. So it's a mutilated checkerboard. And the very famous problem asks, can you cover this mutilated board with dominoes? What do you think? So those who know the answer are not allowed to answer. <laughs> so, you take the dominoes, so where should we start? We could start here and start tiling around in a kind of like a spiral way. Or maybe up there, or maybe we start from the middle. Yeah? I don't know. I don't know whether you can. I don't know if it's obvious whether you can or not. But let me give you this idea. Let's color this mutilated checkerboard like a chessboard. Okay? Like this. Um, and so, therefore, the domino will be one black and one white square. Yeah? So, and now, it will be immediately obvious that, look, I've taken away two white squares, so obviously I have two more of black squares, but if I'm covering it with a domino, I need to have the same number of white and black squares, so I'm never going to be able to cover that with, uh, with the dominoes. So it's so obvious to us, right? It's really intuitive. You can see you change representation and you can have a solution to your problem immediately. But you wouldn't believe uh, this is not possible for machines to do this. And this is the kind of problems that I'm concentrating on. I'm looking, I'm trying to enable machines to think in this kind of way. So what you have scrolling here is a computer, it's a computer proof of this, uh, of this problem. And don't worry, you don't need to decipher what it means. But I can tell you that, uh, that it's, it certainly is not capturing that intuitive uh, idea that I just presented you in the, in the solution. Um, so, uh, so many, many human-like abilities like this are currently not captured or emulated by, by AI systems. But will they be in the future? Well, I, I certainly so, hope so, because this is one of the main items of the, on the agenda of, uh, of most of AI researchers. Now, um, so the, these technological advances that we have, uh, that we're working towards, are unparalleled nowadays. And, but I see the future in the hands of humans, but heavily supported and uh, helped by intelligent systems. So machines will assist and collaborate with us in order to enable us to work more um, effectively and to do things that we couldn't do alone. So if you like, it's kind of uh, an augmented intelligence. 
And so with, with such rapid advi uh, advances that we have in AI, uh, I'm, and I'm sure all of you are often ask, asked, so if the, if the computers are going to be more intelligent than us, does that pose a threat to us? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really answer that question. But I certainly think that the positives uh, definitely outweigh the negatives. So we're nowhere near uh, something like a Terminator-like future. Um, but we are only about a decade or so away from the future where AI helps doctors to diagnose better and to cure diseases by prescribing uh, cure diseases better, more effectively by prescribing personalized drugs, uh, where drivers are helped to drive more safely, where surgeons can operate more accurately, and where people can talk uh, uh, in multiple languages uh, 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 simultaneously. So I think all of these advances, I think, are going to make our world better. Uh, a better place. So I think that uh, we just need to stay calm and carry on with this line of research. Thank you. So great. So we've uh, well, we've talked a lot about uh, AI, big data, machine learning. Um, but not really very much about the human brain yet. And so our final speaker is going to bring us back to, to the human brain and tell us if this, all this clever stuff that computers can do really adds up to a hill of, bean, hill of beans. It's uh, the Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Experimental Psychology at the University of Cambridge, uh, Professor Trevor Roberts. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about real brains, and uh, from two perspectives, um, a top-down approach from cognitive neuroscience, I'm going to have a harder look at this concept of intelligence, which I reject, general intelligence. And I'm also going to do some reverse engineering to see if we knew everything about the human brain, and we could simulate it or emulate it, would properties emerge which would be like artificial intelligence? So these two different approaches. So top down, we've heard about chess and go. Um, it's worth reflecting that um, working memory is the very important component of chess and go play, looking ahead. And working memory is a very good predictor of IQ test performance. But it's not sufficient to play well at chess or go. You need to add in other abilities, for example, the valuation of particular outcomes, and also policies or rules or principles. If you add all that together, then you can begin to emulate go. You might be able to play chess quite well as a computer, but you won't be able to move the pieces. Um, into the right positions. And this is not a trivial point. The human brain is much more versatile than a computer. It does many more things. Um, we may have to decide whether we're going to, um, for example, play chess or go shopping 
or have a conversation. And we have all these abilities to choose among, and somehow we have to place value on these and select the goals from moment to moment. And just doing what the next thing, that's an important matter, but what do we mean by next? We're talking about continuity in time. It's quite a tricky concept. This is the young Trevor, and one of the special learning capacities of the human brain, we've heard a lot about machine learning, and infants, of course, are extremely good at picking up statistical regularities in the world with machine-like processes and learning a hell of a lot. But there are some additional tricks which help early learning and make this such an explosive period of cognitive development. So one of these is imitation and mirror neurons. Um, so neuroscience um, has discovered the presence of nerve cells in the monkey brain which will respond when a monkey makes a movement to a goal, for example, a food object, and grasps it. That's quite remarkable. But what's even more remarkable is that that same nerve cell will fire when another monkey performs the same action to a, to, to a similar goal, or even a human. So in other words, this is essentially a building block of social cognition. And this must be a very, very difficult thing to compute because of all the many degrees of freedom involved in imitating an action. So imitation is very important and it occurs very early on in humans within 40 minutes of birth without even examples beforehand. Now another important aspect is emotional and social learning and I'm sure um, Herman Howes would agree with me that in a company you don't just want people who are very clever and write programs and produce uh, brilliant hardware. You have to have people who empathise with other people and make sure that the company performs very well. There has to be teamwork. And this is not a, a trivial point either, that feelings are very important for intelligence, emotional intelligence, far outstrips our notions of general IQ as measured by IQ tests. Shared attention is another very important concept which occurs obviously in language learning where somehow the degrees of freedom are dra dramatically reduced by shared attention from, in this case, an infant and its mother and can lead to language explosion. It's very obvious that there's data to show that Learning a second language, Mandarin, for example, for an English-speaking infant, is greatly facilitated by a social imitator compared with mere exposure by TVs. So what is it about this social element that is so important for language learning? It doesn't occur with mere exposure, but it does occur with a social trainer. This creativity, um, how important is that? Computers are good at writing po poems. Although I remember reading a line, I revel in your sweet-smelling diamond architecture. <laughs> uh, but poems can fool you some of the time. Uh, computers can fool you some of the time with poetry and with music. But my point would be that they are unable to judge whether it's any good or not. The aesthetics, how do you judge that? And that's something which must be very hard to compute. 
And there's the hard problem, which I'm not going to go into. <laughs> now, the other approach um, is to bottom up, get the wiring diagram of the brain, let's say it's wired up, and then make one and see if it produces intelligence. So there's all sorts of approaches here. So um, this is the, 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 the kind of organ, the rather boring-looking mass of tissues, um, which, of course, has many components and many modules, many particular groups of nerve cells in this huge number of 100 billion or so. How do we study the wiring diagram of the human brain? We have to use human neuroimaging methods, uh, and these are human neuroimaging data. Um, and we're only just recently been able to work out how best to understand the topology of these different units, how they're actually connected together functionally. So this is the structural representation, but actually when you begin to, um, when you begin to uh, look at this brain uh, topologically, um, this is the true representation with all the hubs and edges of this complex small world network. So that is what a, a human brain really is in terms of connectivity. Now, we do have good connectomes, as they're called, of other animals. So this is uh, C. elegans, the nematode that lives in your gut. Um, it has about a thousand cells, of which only 300 odd are nerve cells. We know where all, they all are, uh, and so one knows about the connectome of the nematode. And, and we have similar connectomes for other animals, lobsters and lampreys, for example. Now, is it possible even to emulate these animals, these simple brains? Somebody from Harvard is very confident about this um, and thinks that whole brain emulation is not a matter of if, but when. Um, and he has begun to analyse the nematode brain and predicted in 2011 that a full emulation of the nematode worm, which would include not only its connectome, but also its embodiment as a worm, and how it would respond to approach food or to avoid electric shocks. Well, the paper still hasn't happened, and I'm waiting for it. Um, but he predicts that um, the zebrafish will be next, 100,000 nerve cells, and then the honeybee with nearly a million, the mouse has 50 million, and the human about 100 billion, as I said earlier. And David Dalrymple has predicted firmly that a full cellular level emulation of the human brain will be feasible within his lifetime, which we think is by the year 2017. Now, that may be surprising to you, but there are others out there who have suggested that it's going to be even sooner, even sooner than 2017. Well, I'm not so sure. First of all, because there's so much we don't understand about the human brain. Just in January, this paper was published from the Salk Institute, which is quite astonishing. It shows that the memory capacity of the hippocampus of the brain is an order of magnitude greater than previously thought because of new discoveries. A discovery of a whole range of sizes of synapses, these are the connections between nerve cells, which were unprecedented and not previously um, realised. And this actually increases the computation of the of the hippocampus, its memory capacity, to the level perhaps of a petabyte, much as the entire web, 
about 4.7 bits of information at each synapse, which is quite extraordinary. So it's one cubic millimetre of tissue um, in a rat brain, actually. So it's this kind of data which leads me to wonder how difficult it's going to be to do this bottom-up emulation. We have all these levels of analysis. Um, we have the networks. This is the wiring diagram of the visual system. But we also need to know how the nerve cells work within this system, how they fire, what their bursting rates are. We need to know what the, the fundamental modules or computational models in the cortex are. These are uh, cortical columns uh, which contribute um, to, these, to these particular hubs, as you see here. And, of course, these are based on synapses, which themselves are based on ion channels and receptor molecules, which have allosteri, chemical neuromodulation. There's a lot of complexity here. And on top of it all, as I said before, actually the degrees of freedom involved in our choices of the next action are so enormous. How you actually move the pieces is actually, at the moment, an insoluble problem for AI. So I'm not going to say never. Never say never. I think the, the advances have been astonishing. But I wouldn't underestimate the difficulties, certainly, of emulating the human brain uh, from this prospect. So my conclusions are that computers can outperform us at many human cognitive tasks. Not language yet, um, but certainly chess and go and face recognition, for example. However, they're not as versatile at dealing with multiple goals. The human brain, in particular, is a very good all-rounder. We can do lots of things quite well. Um, I'm not so sure computers can do lots of things. We could attempt to emulate superintelligence by modelling the human, or indeed the non-human brain, more modestly, from scratch, and that's going to inspire some, I suspect, new computational tricks. There's certainly challenges and strategies. But I think the sheer complexity of the human brain and our continuing ignorance of many of its parameters will ultimately prove to be the slower route to superintelligence than the top-down approach. Thank you.